Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. I have a brand new guest on. His name is Emmanuel Shetler. And he has been sucked into the throes of the vicious attack against him in family court in Keatsville, Missouri. He left the Amish culture in 2018. That's the only thing he did. He wanted a better life, and he asked his wife to leave with him. However, she refused. That would start his journey to this point of a cultural bully program, so narcissistic and cruel, full of manipulation, deception, thievery, and ultimate alienation of his children, so dire and vile. They hid the sexual abuse of his daughters for over two years. While the Amish mother continued to live to give the predator access, she lived under the same roof as another sexual deviant who finally con- was convicted for the brutal rape of his sister. He died within days of being in the prison system. The government in Keatsville has shown itself to be so blatantly corrupt, it's unfathomable. Now, he also, his ex, after telling him of the sexual abuse of his daughters, then filed false allegations calling him, his girlfriend, and his and her 16-year-old daughter, child molesters. Their attorney informed them that her attorney wrote the ex parte, yet did nothing with that information, which now leads them to believe that he was just as corrupt as them. The judge awarded her custody, even with her admitted drug use, failure to report sexual abuse, and admitting she only filed the orders to keep him away from the kids. The judge refused him a court date for the restraining order, which he kept in place for 1.5 years, further alienating him from his children. And I welcome you to the podcast. And I'm very sorry, Emmanuel, that this is all happening to you. Where are you at right now with all of this? I really don't know where I'm at. Um, we just, um, the judge just wrote the expat, um, decree the 16th of um, December. So I ended up getting a new attorney, uh, an appeals attorney out of Kansas City. So he wrote a, a brief or something to the judge calling him out on blatantly um, misusing the law. And I guess everything he's done, and he hasn't even seen the trial transcripts yet. All he done was from what the decree said. So he kind of took off from the decree and made his point. So as long as we were trying to get a court date, a year and a half for a restraining orders, the ex parte himself, um, when he filed that on the case net within Two days, the judge filed and had a court date scheduled, which is in um, February 9th at 11 a.m. So I'm not sure if it's like a retrial. I'm really not sure what to expect um, to happen that day. So, Uh, oh, go ahead. I I was going to say, besides that, I do have have my kids this week. I went down there. December, I get them the last week of uh, the last full week of every month, and then um, the way he's got it written out, it's uh, June, July, August. I get them for three weeks, and but I still have to do all the traveling back and forth. Like Saturday night, I do schoolwork. I'm in college, so I had to do schoolwork until 11:30. Quickly took my shower, drove down there, took two naps, so I was down there by 12 o'clock or noon on Sunday. To pick up the kids and by the time I got home it was uh 10 30. So it's like and then it's the same thing over when I take them back home. It's 20 well by the time you stop a couple times it's like 22 hours. Um it just it wears me out. It wears them out. Oh sure I'm sure it does. That's such a long drive back and forth. Yeah. <clears throat> It's very frustrating. In, when you left the Amish, 
and she wouldn't go. Why? Why wouldn't she go with you? I, I truly believe um, she didn't go because she needed support. They had, and I say they because as they go through this, I don't believe she was ever by herself as far as planning this. Um, I wasn't going to leave for a couple more months. I was trying to figure it out, and I had a cell phone. And she went through my pockets one night. I had it in my pockets. And when I woke up at 12 o'clock that night, I had my whole living room was uh, was filled with uh, the Amish people. And I woke up like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, lights are on and everybody's here. They said, um, we think you're mentally ill. I was like, what the heck are you talking about? They said, oh, your wife found a cell phone. I said, Wait a minute. I said, wait a minute. I have three businesses and I have a farm that I'm trying to run and I need a phone. I need faster communication. I can't do it without technology. And you're trying to tell me I'm mentally ill. Yes, we think you're mentally ill. You work too much. You have too much going on. And after eight hours of arguing, I finally, I finally said, you know, just do whatever the heck you want to do. That's what you're going to do anyway. But it's such a brainwashing in the Amish culture. Mm-hmm. It's so manipulative. Mm-hmm. It's I find that eight o'clock on a set on a Friday morning, or I'm sorry, on a Saturday morning, after eight hours of arguing, um, they took me to um, forced me to Canton, Ohio, to Altman's mental institution, which I was there for about fifteen minutes. And the guy told me, he said, "You don't have, you don't have a problem." He said, "Do you have a way home?" He said, uh, so he brought his personal cell phone in, but he said, uh, we've dealt with the Amish before. And he said, you're going out the back door because they'll all be waiting in a waiting room for you to get out. So that's what I ended up doing. And uh, at that time, I knew there was no there was no coming back for nothing for me. But the way they treated me, trying to get me to take drugs, um, they brought the deacon brought Xanax and Paxils over. And trying to get me to take them, they said, if you just take one of these, you'll feel better. It's like, I don't, I don't need a drug. I'm not a drug addict. I don't want drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they tried to put them in my coffee. So that night I wouldn't, yeah, they, they'll put them in. They don't care. Um, so I tried to, I wouldn't drink anything or eat anything that I didn't make myself. So mm-hmm. I knew there was no drugs in it. So that's where it all started. Where was now, you know, you may not know, but where was the deacon getting this medication? I know for a fact that he's got prescriptions for it because when I was still on she was in the same community. Um, I remember conversations where he said he takes one every day. Um, and like on Sundays or days he's not feeling himself, he'll take two a day. <laughs> yeah, and you can see it if you've ever seen drug people on the street he has the same hollow eye look but it's in a pill form and the doctor told him he can take it so it's fine in um i was reading the book um uh, let me see here let me pull this up here it was a book it was a book called crimson stain written by jim fisher and he talked about it, the Amish being a cult. It's a male-dominated cult. In fact, there are no birth records when a baby is born. And if a baby isn't born right, they just leave it in the woods. I, I've heard of that. Now, I don't know as far as like my five children. Um Three of them were born at a midwife, Amish midwife, the twins, and then my oldest, well, actually my oldest son, I had to give birth to him. Um, we didn't take it up there, but like the midwife would actually get the birth certificate. So we had birth certificates. And then the youngest two ended up being born in a hospital. So we had their social security numbers and birth certificates. But it took me like two months to get the three oldest birth, or 
social security numbers because the social security administration said I had to have a letter from the signed by the bishop in order for me to get my so my kids a social security number. It took me two to three months just to argue and go back and forth and bring more documents. And I said the bishop wasn't there when bishop wasn't there when it was made. The bishop wasn't there when they were born. He didn't know them until they were seven or six years old. We moved down here. He he didn't know like why why do we have a system that enables these people to, you know, to further alienate your, somebody. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, so you were shunned yes. completely. And then, you know, you had to get an attorney. Well, it ended up being, I was, I don't know if there's a word bad enough, but I was, the end of 20, uh, 2018 and throughout 2019. I was miserable. I didn't know what to do. The Amish would come and like in groups and try to talk to me, oh, you need to do this. You're going to hell. You're, you're bad influence. How can you do this? Um, so I was, I went, I went through hell and I was just, I was as miserable as a person could get. I didn't know, like I was, one way somebody was saying one thing here it, it was just my head was spinning but i knew i knew that i would never go back to that cult like no matter what i would take my own life before i would go back to that cult mm -hmm. so i was trying to see my kids she ended up moving seven times in like a year and two months so i ended up having to wait until she would write a letter and see where the return address was, and then I would go to try to see my kids. But I always had somebody come up, and a lot of times there was a half a dozen or more people, and always interfering, just trying to see my kids, telling me, oh, you can't give them any Christmas presents, you're shunned, you can't. One time I gave them, I think, six chickens, or baby chicks, but they love little small farm animals. Yeah. And they told me, don't ever give them any animals or anything like that because they said those chickens will grow up and they're shunned and then they can't eat them. Yeah, because they're shunned. So it's just, it was one, like it was like a, there was an obstacle every time. And I, I just, I didn't know what to do until in um, 2021. Um, see was may we had an agreement a year prior to that that i would get the kids during that summer of 2021 after school is out and i would take them like to the beach and we would enjoy you know i have them spend some time with them and then in april i went up for the girl's birthday and mike's wife's sister said oh we is never going to let you have the kids mm -hmm. So it was just something to try to keep me away from as long as they could. So I ended up going up there in June and was going to get all five of the kids. <clears throat> and I had the three oldest run away. And so I ended up with the two youngest. And I brought them with me. We went to the beach. We went to Gatlinburg. And then we came back home. And I had them for two months, almost two months. And my mistake I still, I feel like I had too soft of a heart because I told them, I said, we have to go back and visit the other children and you have to visit your mom. You just can't leave and not, they didn't want to go back. They didn't, they didn't want nothing. They wouldn't talk about their mom. They wouldn't, if you would start saying something about their mom, they changed the subject. They, they didn't want to talk about her. And at that time, my, not the youngest, the second from youngest, he would have been, Five, he told me, Dad, you know what's going to happen. There's always an argument every time you come. They are trying to do this. He said, Why do we have to go? I mm -hmm. said, Well, it's not right. It's not fair to your siblings. It's not, I, I said, It's not fair. Mm -hmm. uh, we went back um, the end of July, and she instantly took the youngest and dressed him in Amish clothes. And she told me that the girls were molested 
two years prior to that. And I, I didn't know what to do. I was shocked. It's like, a, we talked about this and I, I said, how can you do this? And you didn't, you didn't nothing. And she turned around and said, well, I was molested when I was a girl. We was married for nine years. I dated, we dated for three years. That's 12 years. She never mentioned anything. We've talked about this kind of stuff multiple times and how it doesn't get reported within the Amish. The only thing they're worried about is forget and forgive. And she looked at me straight in my eyes and she said, why have you always had it in for child molesters? I could, I was speechless. Mm -hmm. I was like, what, what do you, what do you talk to? What do you mean? Why should I, well, God, God wants us to love everybody. Well, I said, I guess I'm sorry because in that, if that's the case, I don't have no God because I'm not, I'm not praying to a God that wants me to love a child molester that molests my kids or rapes anybody. I, I just, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't roll that way. Mm -mm, mm -mm. And then she said, well, what are you going to do? If I would have been home, but I was eight hours or nine hours away, I would have shot him. There's zero doubt in my mind. I would have shot him. Mm -hmm. But the more I got to thinking about it uh, on the way home, I, I was like, I can't because my kids will always stay and I, I can't do it for my kids. Mm -hmm. uh, if I go to prison or whatever, they will be stuck in that place. Mm -hmm. So I made four reports on social service in Missouri, social service in Kentucky. Um, I had uh, a deputy sheriff come out to the house and I made a report to him and also reported in um, Kentucky to the sheriff's department. That was on a Thursday. On a Saturday when social services, Saturday or Sunday when social services went to her house, apparently she switched the story. I don't know, I really don't know what happened, but she accused me of molesting my youngest son. And she also said my girlfriend did and she threw her daughter in there. Everybody, everybody that was in my house. Um, so I had the restraining orders, allegations. The state trooper came out to my house and he said, you're going to jail. What is your side of the story? I said, well, excuse me, but I don't have a side of the story. Because first I start talking, I told him, I said, you have it wrong. I said, it's not me. It's my brother that molested my daughters. And he said, no. I don't have it wrong until I realized what really was going on because at that time I was doing hot shot hall and I was in Idaho and only had my, cause she, she took the youngest, my youngest son and made so I couldn't take him. So me and my second three youngest finally just left. So I still had him here. He was with my girlfriend and her daughter and they FaceTimed me from Idaho when the state trooper and the social services came. So yeah, they came and snatched uh, Christian out of the house, which in her report, there was nothing out of place in the house. There, there were no concerns as far as that. And he wanted to take a bath before he leaves. She went in the bathroom, took naked pictures of him, um, which never were in any of the discovery. She didn't have them anywhere in there. Um, and then she took him. She, she took him and her in her truck and said, well, they're gonna have an interview the next day. And if nothing is said, she will bring them back. So she had my ex-wife bring the rest of the children up here to Kentucky for an interview, which I have the recording and anybody that listens to it, it's a it's nothing but a bunch of perverts. Um, I, I've never, I, I've never experienced anything like this. And it ended up, she took all the kids back after she admitted that the girls were molested up here and that she knew that they were molested two years prior. And she still had got to take all the kids back with her. And so that's kind of where, and she filed a, when she filed the ex parte, she filed a legal separation also. So that's kind of how it all got in play because two, uh, the two months that I had the boys, 
I was trying to get a divorce and I kept calling Kentucky and they would send me to Missouri because the children have been there longer than six months. And then I called Missouri. They said, because this is their primary home, this is where she had left from. I have to file it in Kentucky. So I was arguing back and forth for two months. And then she ended up filing legal separation in Kentucky, or in Missouri. In Missouri. You have so, been through such a... Uh... You know, a, a turmoil, you know. Um, now, she was living with a predator as well. When she moved to, because she moved, when she left here, because I left, and then two months after, I'll backtrack a little bit. Two months after I left, they finally got me talked into coming back. Oh, you have to come back. You have to come back. So I told them, I will. I'm gonna have my phone, my clothes, and my truck. Okay, that's fine. They're okay with that as long as I come back. And I was like, well, I can do that for the kids. I have to do something. Mm -hmm. And those times I would stop in and you know just visit with them. So I finally they got me convinced it's a good idea to come back. And then it, it was all hell again. Everybody piled over here. Oh, how can you do this? Dressing these clothes in front of your kids. Drive your truck. Have your phone in front of your kids. What are you teaching your kids? And it was just, it was a constant thing, which now I know what they were trying to do. They were trying to break me down because within two weeks, the bishop came over and said she had to leave because I'm going to corrupt her too. Like she's, she's going to be, she might leave if, I, if we're together. So she ended up moving to the bishop's house. And from there, she moved to Pennsylvania. And then she moved to West Virginia. Then she moved back down here to Kentucky with my parents. And then after girls were molested, right after that, she moved to Missouri um, with her sister and brother-in-law, which had the rapist living with them. And they were all well aware. We actually talked to his mom. And she stated, yes, we had to kick him out of our home at the age of 14 because he was so bad in bestiality, we couldn't control him anymore. So she said he bounced around um, several different places, including Edward Trock, which was the bishop in Keatsville community and got 72 years. Hmm. So and he was staying with, uh, with her brother-in-law and sister. And when she moved in, so she moved my kids from I mean, it's from a skillet to a frying pan. Uh, those poor kids being moved. It's all that time. You would think with all the moves and different communities and everything they've been, the judge would have been like, or the GAL, like, dang, that's crazy. But they were worried about moving them back here with me would be traumatic because it would be in a, new, uh, in a new environment. They was afraid it would be traumatic. So keep them in a, an abusive environment and that's okay. Oh yeah, I mean, that's the same thing as if a parent is abusing their kids sexually or physically, but that's all they know. So the court system ought to just leave them in there. I mean, that, into my, my opinion, that's what they were saying. Mm -hmm. It's better because they're used to being abused. It's better to leave them in an abuse situation than to change their environment. <laughs> they had, they had nothing to um, to try to, you know, to keep me from getting my kids. And it's like when we had a deposition. My attorney actually left his phone in there because he said he wanted to. That way he could kind of go over it before the transcripts come back. And when we had a break because um, the Zoom was messing up for the transcript, his phone was in there and he told me that he looked at that and her attorney and the GAL were still in the room and her attorney told the GAL, you're going to subpoena this one um, counselor because she took him there one day for two hours and when we was in court, she said, that, oh, they'd be better off with the mom because they don't want to go with dad. He told the GAL, you're going to subpoena her. And the GAL was like, why would I, I can't do that. Why would I do that? 
and her attorney stated that because my attorney already asked for um um like evidence or um discovery and he said nobody asked the gal for that he said that's the only thing we got now at some point you realized your lawyer was in on this as well i've actually i had this was the third lawyer i have one out of uh, st louis that wasn't doing anything um, he finally got me supervised visitations, but the way he had written it off, it was, there was no stopping. There was just a constant, which was, um, she was, um, unethical. Um, it, it was a, that was a nightmare in itself. So when I realized, cause I told him, I said, we need to do this, but we need to do that. And it's been, it's been six months. Nothing is changing. He said, well, you just sit back on your couch, drink a beer and watch Netflix. I was like, dude, you don't understand. This is my kids' lives. Mm -hmm. He said, um, and then the one time he told me, he said, uh, or you might as well do as I say, because he said, if you don't, he said, I can ride this out forever. <laughs> and that's the point. But that's when I knew, I knew this is, this is over for him. So I hired another one. I was going to try to do it myself, but I just, I, I knew I could, I can't do it. It's just too much. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have him a month. And the one time we went in his office, he didn't know it was coming in. It was custom to F this and F that behind there, his workers. And so I quit and got this attorney when we was there on May 5th of last year for uh, our restraining orders. Me and my girlfriend both had a court date. When a judge basically laughed in her face, oh, I ain't got time to deal with it today. After we drove nine hours down there and took off, um, he was there and then we got him and he, I thought he was good and he was as far as his talking part was really, really good. Uh, we sent him so much stuff, so many evidence. And he told us he was going to use um, the ex parte as far as her attorney writing that. Because in the, um, in her deposition, he asked her about the ex parte, and she said, uh, well, I was afraid he was going to come get the kids. <laughs> like, that's why she, and they said something about something else that was written in the ex parte. She said, well, I don't know what's all written in the ex parte. And he had, he told me he had three different cases with this attorney, which included mine, in three different counties with three completely different people. And he has put them side by side, and they were all three of them were identical handwriting. And at one point, he had told me he had gotten a handwriting analysis, and that was going to be his last thing he was going to use, like in, in court, at the trial. He was going to bring that up, and which everything he had said leading up to the trial sounded really good. What he was going to do, he wasn't going to leave any stone unturned. Mm -hmm. We get to the trial and she's up there three three hours. I'm like, we didn't. There's nothing said. So she obviously did not present any of the evidence or anything. She didn't have nothing. The only thing they they harped on, I left her. I left her. I left her. And that's what I said. I didn't leave her. I was forced to a mental institution, which to this day, they still have my phone, which was a thousand dollar iPhone that she stole and never gave it back. <sighs> so, and there wasn't even anything said. There was, I don't believe there was one thing said about her false allegations. She's just, it's, it's like, well, it's almost like the Amish when a bishop comes and tries to tell you what you did wrong and you're like, no, it didn't happen. Nothing like that happened. And they said, well, don't be mad. You just be happy that it ain't true. And I felt the same, like it was the same kind of feeling, like how, how am I supposed to be happy? Somebody lies. Um, I mean, she cost my girlfriend to lose $98,000 contract because of this. 
and I'm supposed to be happy just because it ain't true. Because they've drugged my kids through uh, forensic interviews. I think it was the fourth one when I finally, because her brother-in-law was the um, interpreter. So they had never asked my son anything. So after three interviews, I told uh, Keatsville or Sheridan County that if they don't have a third party translator that speaks Pennsylvania Dutch, I will own their ass. I'm going to sue them. And then when they had one and did a forensic interview, they had no idea what they were talking about. So it was always her brother-in-law that were saying, oh, he said this, or he said that, or they said this, or they, they said that. And they were making this shit up. Mm-hmm. But when they really asked the kids, nothing happened. They had no idea what they were talking about. So then CPS just closed that part of part of the case and exonerated you all? Um, they finally, um, after the girls stated enough times that they were molested, and they stated that they told their mom the first time that they were molested, but they got molested multiple times after that. They finally convicted my brother from it. He was still would have been a juvenile. But if we wouldn't have pushed it, and kept calling uh, uh, Kentucky State Police and try to get something done. They would have got he would have got a slap on the hand. And it's mm-hmm. like the state trooper when he interviewed them, he basically asked my brother, or he told them, "You were just experimenting, weren't you?" <sighs> it was the grossest thing. Like I couldn't listen to the rest of the. Um, I, I couldn't listen to it. Like it, it just made me sick. And this was the same state trooper that was in the inter uh, that was in the interview with the kids the first time. It was disgusting. You know that is so messed up because when this was, you know, entered into court, why didn't they move it to criminal court with the? I have no idea. Ah. I don't know. It's been it's been hell. Um, I got a visit when let's see, it would have been like a, on a Friday before court. Yes, it would have been on a Friday before court. The court was on June fourteenth or fifteenth or November fourteenth or fifteenth. So I had a visit with them. And I have I have my body cam on because I knew that, like I'm not I don't trust them I don't trust anything they say so I have my body cam on from the time I pulled in that driveway until I left and the English neighbor I call him English he's not Amish he came down here he was cussing me out he was walking up and down he called the police um, state police and a um, sheriff came out and they were trying to get me to leave and. It was the Amish were all there, and they went and ran and got the ex parte. Her brother in law did, and trying to tell the police, Well, I did this and I did that. Because, and it all happened because me and the kids, we was in there talking, which the rest of them were right there. And I told the kids, Show me your room. I want to see where they sleep. I want to see like the upstairs, what they have. And we walked up there and we was looking at each one's room, which I had pictures of it because I wanted pictures of what they looked like. Uh, and her neighbor called, said, I said, so you, you just came up and interfere and call the police? He said, oh, I called the police before I got here. I said, so wait a minute. You called the police as soon as you knew I was here. I said, who are you? Mm-hmm. I said, are you the supervisor? He said, I can be. I said, and what, what are you supposed to be a police too? He said, absolutely. He said, I'm, I said, so basically you're everything. You're the police, you're the supervisor, you're supposed to, he said, well, I can enforce the law. Well, I said, if that's the case, you need to get the hell out. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I said, I asked him, I said, were you part of the, the paper? Were you part of the, were you the driver, anything to do with the, this boy that brutally raped his sister and he got right in my face within a foot of my face and he used his finger he said don't you ever talk about him again he paid for his sins um 
And he said, we can take this outside, which I knew what he wanted. And I was hoping, I mean, I, I'm standing right there like, and if you, I can't believe you fucking said this and you did that. And then in court, he said, oh, that was just a normal conversation. It wasn't heated. Then he turned around and said, well, that was a little bit heated. And my attorney tried to play that, but the judge denied him. He said, it's not relevant to the case. We didn't let him play any of that part. How they've been manipulating, how they've been interfering, alienating, uh, he wouldn't let him play it in the trial. Well, that judge obviously was not doing his job, his due diligence uh, at all, his dereliction of duty. I I had asked my attorney to um, do a change of venue because mm-hmm. I said he he violated my rights. I had it was supposed to within fifteen or thirty days to have a court date. I said we're at a year. We're over a year at that point. Well, he said we can't do a change of venue because they will punish us if we take it somewhere else. I said, we're not gonna get a fair trial. It's not gonna be fair. And he said, oh, this judge, he loves children. And he said, I've seen him pull children out of home if they had ants on their countertop. Which he told me that uh, Sheridan County where that's um, GAL and he's also, juvenile something where he is and the judges in that county they pull like there's hundreds and hundreds of kids that get pulled out of their house through social workers and stuff but he said in Carrollton County where he's at he said there's no kids getting pulled out so there's a money scheme there's something there's something going on there's some sort of corruption um, money scheme going on amongst themselves So are they making you pay child support too? Yes. She, and I had a letter um, of hers writing the one time she uh, wrote that she can make $20 an hour the business that she had. Um, None of that they took in consideration. Um, So on the trial, she stood up there and said she didn't have a job. She just worked here and there a little bit. She didn't have a regular job. so they took my pay for what I made and they allowed $200 a month uh, because I had to drive everything. So I have to put 29,000 and some miles on my car a year plus however much it costs in gas and my time and I get $200 a month and I still have to pay $620 a month. And everything she took, the business, I had a metal roll forming business, which was worth well over half a million dollars. My attorney was trying to figure it out, and I think he entered it in at 450000 which was um, near what it was. And then I had a mini barn business, which was about 75000 60 to seventy five, that I had material. That was just the materials that I still had. And then I had a carpentry where I did roofing where they took all my papers and the contacts and the money people still owed me and the future jobs, they took that from me and collected that and did those jobs. He never took any of that in consideration. None of it. Yeah, there's something wrong with these domestic relations units where they uh, are not investigating appropriately. It is. We had all the we had the evidence where she drawed out forty five thousand dollars and closed my business account two days after they sent me to a mental institution. They got it on a Monday morning as soon as the bank opened and took every nickel I have. They thought they was going to starve me out. Mm-hmm. I would have to come call them back. That's sick. It, it is. I've never, that's why I said I have. They want, and then they continuously keep saying, well, you respect the culture. I don't respect that. No. I have no. lived it for 30 years and I've been through hell. I don't respect it. There's nothing in there to respect. Oh, I, I agree with you. So 
Now, I know I had asked before, but your your girlfriend and her daughter and you have all been exonerated from these lies that she told. But nothing happened. They never even questioned her daughter. Okay. They never questioned my girlfriend. She has never had nobody. They were worried about me and they knew she just threw that in there. They mm-hmm. never, not a, not a, not a trooper, not a sheriff not a attorney nobody has said nothing to my girlfriend about those charges it's just it went it's like it went away it's just open smoke because i knew it wasn't true oh yeah i don't know i i never i mean i knew that there is corruption in the justice system i mean it's always if there's money involved it's always you know, a chance for corruption, but I have never in my entire life experienced or even heard of anything what go- what's been going on through here. Mm-hmm. You know, now your kids are of the ages, are they teens? Um, my girls are 11. I have a nine, a seven and a five-year-old son. But they're, when they come like this week, they come up here and they're just, it's hell. They're trying to wear their clothes. They stink. Mm-hmm. Like it was so bad in the car. I had to roll my windows down. They're 11. My girls are 11. And then my youngest son is five. And they stunk so bad. Like they take a bath, I guess, once a week. That there's, it's insane. It's, and they come up here and they try to tell me what they're going to do. Well, the judge said this. Well, the GAL said this. If you don't do this, this is what's going to do. Well, mom said, you're just never content with what you got. And that's why you're taking it back to court. They said, you're going to end up losing us. So I told them, I said, well, I think you're too big to lose. What am I going to lose you on the leaves or something? I said, you're too big. But I know what they were trying to say, that she told them that if I keep taking it back to court, I won't get to see them at all. Yeah, that. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say it's just hell. It's a, it's a, it's a battle. They've even got my five-year-old saying, "Oh, I don't want to wear your clothes." Last time, after about three days, they all had their phones. They all had, you know, different games they were playing on their phones. We taught them about the solar system, which (laughs) they never heard of the solar system. They don't know any of that stuff. And I'm used to just watching TV a few minutes before I came up here. And they were trying to figure out how to get Little House on the Prairie on. So mm-hmm. I was explaining to them. And I said, um, that word, uh, you have to push the arrow where it says resume. And I said, do you know what resume means? And they was like, no, no, no. Like they don't, they don't learn anything. Mm-hmm. And she even said in the trial, like there's, they don't have an opportunity. There's no way they could go past, uh, past eighth grade in the Amish. Like that's as far as their education, as far as they could go. And their health care is, I still have to pay for health care, um, but she won't do anything. She told the last time, last month, she wrote a little note and said, uh, my one daughter has... Uh, uh, vitamin D deficiency, mm-hmm. which is really bad if she actually does, but she's not doing anything. I took them to a dentist yesterday, and I have to schedule them for um, root canal specialist. My one daughter's got underneath one of her, and it's her adult teeth, has a pocket in there. And she said, well, I told mom it, my, that, that tooth was hurting, and she took me, and they did an x-ray, and they said, oh, it's not that tooth. That's your molders that are coming in. So it's like, um, and even as far as brushing their teeth, they they finally started brushing them. They, they said in the last three weeks, they've tried almost every day, at least once a day. But before, they didn't brush their teeth. They, they don't know hygiene. They told me because they have an outside um, um, outhouse. 
And I said, isn't it cold to go out there, especially if you have to go at night? They said, oh, we have a bucket in our closet that we, we just pee and poop in the closet if we have to go at night if it's too cold, and then we'll dump it out. Mm. Like, I mean, it's 2023. They have no toilet. And here you're paying for medical and she's not even using it. I've, and- had, I've had insurance on my kids for four and a half years. And she knew the one time she did use it when the girls were um, sick, when she was living in Pennsylvania. And I told her if she don't take them to Pittsburgh Hospital and get them checked out, I will come up here and I will take them myself. Because at that time, I still tried to respect them. And she took them in there. And they both, uh, both of them were diagnosed with Lyme's disease. And my insurance paid for that. That's the only time she ever done. All five of my kids have been diagnosed with Lyme's disease. And last time, one of my girls had ear infections uh, when I had them for a checkup. And they gave her amoxicillin. And I asked her, I said, you make sure you took the rest of that amoxicillin so your earache goes away. She said, no, mom said, you don't, I don't need that. She threw it away. She threw them off the ceiling away, her uh, prescription, when she got home and didn't finish taking it. You know, that is so serious, along with the root canal issue. You know, because I had read uh, where a uh, brain surgeon was saying that, it, you know, she had to do an operation on a kid because the ear infection got so out of control, it went into the brain. It is. I don't know if you... If you know anything about the Amish, but it is, it's insane. Like, you cannot turn your brain enough to think the way they're thinking. Like, I've tried, and it's just, I don't know. You can't, because even as far as marrying, uh, get married to their um, second cousin or first, whatever it is. Yeah. It's all love, and that has to come from God. And instead of using birth control or anything like that, it's like, oh, no, that's a gift from God. We don't care. We know that these kids are going to be ill. These kids are going to be autism. It's a gift from God. It's just the way they look at things. But then you have the whole traditional system, you know, standing up there and saying, oh, what they're doing is right. These are just little pawns for um, you know, she, she's the mom. She, she gets to do whatever decision she makes. And she's supposed to make the, um, the major decisions on their health care. But she won't call me. She won't talk to me. She won't. I, there's no communication. I don't even have a phone number where I can talk to her. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they have. And that's what I said. I have to do something. I'm not letting. I would go to prison trying to keep my kids healthy before, you know, I, I can't do it. And it, it's been forever like this. Yeah, you know, this is all, you know, education neglect. You know, they could get her on medical neglect, failure to thrive, and they're not doing anything with this mother. They're not doing anything. And even when Andrew went back, um, when we went back, because he was, I had both of them in the doctor's office and they both had Lyme's disease. And... Her response to that was, I figured they probably did. And she ended up throwing the rest of his amoxicillin away that he never finished taking it when he had Lyme's disease. And the judge doesn't know anything about this. He should know everything. I had, we had all this. We had the records where I took him to, to do like. I don't know. The GAL's recommendation was that I get full legal and physical custody. And I forget what she gets. Um, like she could have, um, she gets them a little bit here and there. And so her attorney did to examine the GAL. Um, and the judge went 100% the opposite direction. Like he even stated in, I don't know if you've seen the decree, but in one of these places, he even stated that it's against 
Like it goes against Missouri law, but he's going to do it anyway. It, it's just, but he, and, and this one, I mean, this one place he stated, he said, oh, um, we're going to do a partaking at Zanex as an isolated incident. We're going to overlook that. And then two sentences later, he said, um, uh, we're, she's, uh, uh, forget the word he used, but she's a perfect mom. Like she's an excellent mom. But then a couple sentences later, she said, uh, he said, uh, we're concerned about her not reporting sexual abuse. Exemplary parent. But then we're worried about her not um, reporting sexual abuse. And he stated something in there about, you know, how if not, the kids haven't, like she's, she's kept me from the kids for the last year and a half. Mm -hmm. But it's basically no concern. And as my attorney told me right after that, which he called me when the decree came out and said he was so mad, he's upset. Uh, he said, I just need to, uh, a day or so. This was on a Friday. He said, I need, he said, I'll call you on a Saturday or Sunday and we go over everything. Um, he said, I can't believe, you know, he don't have grounds for any of this stuff. And he ended up, he didn't call me for two weeks. I called his office multiple, multiple times, left messages on his cell phone. I've tried. And two weeks later, because that night he told me on a Friday, he said, oh, I've, I've already got scheduled to call an appeals attorney. And he kept telling me throughout this whole case that he's getting it ready for an appeal in case we have to have one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now looking back, I didn't realize, but you, there is no pre preparation for an appeals unless you bring the crap up in trial. It has to be in the trial. So he wasn't, it was just something to say because I've kept asking, like, why would you want to get it ready for an appeal instead of change the venue? You know, where we get a fair trial the first time. Mm -hmm. And then right after, um, the decree was he said oh i'm not an appeals attorney but um he said i'm going to talk to somebody and we're going to try to get somebody and we're going to do this we're going to do that he's never he's never called back like i if i had waited on him i would have missed the boat so you found someone new and and they filed an appeal is that what they did um he told me like he would he filed something um he said it would be necessary or it'd be a, in the best interest of me to file this which it gives the judge i guess an opportunity to do opportunity to rectify his crap mm -hmm. and he told he basically told him um you know the case laws that he put in there he said you went against this and or misapplied the law and two days later the judge had it on the case net for a court date on the ninth. So if it don't, if he don't do, if he don't rectify it, I guess it's going to go to, it'll go to appeal. Oh, it has to. Um, I mean, if he thinks he can change, um, it's everything. I I don't know why judges are doing this, but they're taking them away from the good fit parent and giving them to. And the abuser. That's what I, and that's what my attorney had stated earlier. Like the way they're treating me, and, and they have, they punish me for not being Amish. And I don't know why. Um, and the judge even put it in his decree uh, something about how that she's a, that my ex, like he thought highly of her giving me a really good um like I have an end to go back on me anytime I want and he thought that was really cool it's like they're punishing me for not being Amish they want me back in a sexual abuse cult like I, I I mean they all they've done is harped on her being Amish which in in a deposition, my attorney has clearly identified it and asked, you know, their Christian religion, Amish is a culture. It's 
because that's what he asked her. Like, is it true that I'm a, if I'm a, like, if he's a Christian and he's not Amish, like, it's still a Christian. And she agreed, like, yeah, it's a Christian, but they have the rules and regulations, which puts them in Amish culture. But they still harped on her being Amish, even though the judge has convicted three brutal men in his, I mean, the one, he put battery acid up his wife's rectum to kill her. Uh, Buntrager was his name. Um, yes, he, he gave her aspirin. And that's what, they think the Amish don't know, but the Amish know cruel ways. He gave her enough aspirin to ruin her, her liver because he was having an affair with the maids that he had. And she ended up getting pregnant, I guess, before his wife died. And then when she finally went in a coma, he put battery acid up her rectum to finish her off. And nobody would have known because the Amish don't have autopsy. Mm -hmm. Ten years later, he was working for wherever he lived in Missouri. He was working for like the courthouse putting cabinets in and a bunch of different people. He drove his horse and buggy up there and told him, oh, yeah, by the way, you know, I killed my wife ten years earlier. And he thought, I know he thought he was going to get a slap on the wrist. Like, oh, you know, you've done a lot of work. You're a good person. That shipped his ass. They ended up having to dig his wife's body off in Kentucky, where he lived at that time, and sent it, I believe they said they sent it to Kansas City to a lab to make sure that's what it was. And, it, and he was right. And then as soon as he realized that he was, going to get in trouble for it he tried to change his story but it was too late mm -hmm. so they're they're brutal they're but oh well yes um the book i mentioned crimson stain yeah they are very brutal i don't i've just listened a little bit to uh i believe it's called amish deception and i believe it was a swartz and trooper amish that wrote the book that or he used to be Swartz and Trooper Amish, which is the lowest class of Amish. And um, I believe it I believe it was written by David Yoder. And I haven't read the book. Like it's kind of the rules, what they go by. And then he kind of lays it out like how it's unbiblical. Like none of the stuff they do, because they're more concerned about the rules than they are about the Bible. And I different people has already said in the Amish. It's more about the rules than it is about the Bible. Mm -hmm. God wants us to have a fence. God wants us to, you know, keep everything contained. And I don't know if you watched any documentaries or not, but there's um, there's one out there. I think they got, I forget how many, but this guy stated his his son is the one that's making the documentary, um, but he left. I think his parents left when he was like 13 or something. And his dad stated in there that his uncle, when he was a bishop or preacher, his uncle told him, oh, you ain't preaching hard enough. You have to put brimstone on fire. You have to scare the people into thinking this. That's how you keep them in control. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, do you have, um, you know, do any, anyone try to reach you to talk to you about your story? Is there, if anyone has any questions, how can they contact you? Um, they can contact me through my uh, email. I don't know if you have it there. Yep, or... I've got it. Yeah. Do you want, do you want to say what it is just for them? Yes, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Oh, you want me to say it? Yes, please. Oh, I'm sorry. That's uh, Okay. It's KY as Kentucky Fast Roofing. That's F A S T R O O F I N G at gmail.com. Um, I'd like to have you back on to the podcast for an update as you go along. Um, I'm very sorry this is going on and this is happening to you. And the judge that let this go, he is committing child abuse, child psychological abuse. He's a child abuser in a black robe. Uh, actually, I have that wrong a little bit. 
<laughs> I mean, it's right. But he's the first judge I've ever seen that don't wear a robe. Interesting. Exactly. And his courthouse also don't have um, cameras around, which uh -huh. is another interesting fact. Wow. Well, I can't wait to have you back on again. Um, don't jump off. Uh, thank you so much, Emmanuel. Uh, Slam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here with Emmanuel in the future and other exciting guests. Thank you so much.